out of Austin, Texas. You're listening to the Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast. Here's your host, Sheila Dean. Hey, Becky Stress. Day 23 of 100 Days of Colin. I hope you can hear me. Mic check. So here we are. It is Friday. And I have a book for you by the title of The Trial of Julian Assange, A Story of Persecution. Would you like for me to read you a story? Before I get to that, I just wanted to indicate that there is some tumult over at the SEC. I dropped something in the uh, notifications and comments. Um, if, you're not, if you're not following me or subscribing, you should. It's a good idea. had a really good talk with, um, with Stephen L. Miller last night. Good guy, you know. He wants to put me in an, in a crate uh, for media training. I don't really know how to kind of make that. Whatever, it's media training. <laughs> but I'm going to get to this before I step on my to- my own feet too much. Um, but go go check out the tape. He's he's got a pretty good program here on Colin. Also, a new episode of uh, Unredacted is out. Got some post-Queen Iyer. They wanted to talk about the botched election. The three-week poll date of their new PM, which will now be their old PM. Boris is back in the back in the game, apparently. It's like, oh yeah? You didn't like that one? Well, let's get another one. They can't decide which Tory they want to throw out in two weeks. So, here we go. The Trial of Julian Assange, A Story of Persecution. Headline, The Interrogation of Assange, Word for Word. For the time being, Assange is still in Stockholm. He has canceled his departure, originally planned for 25th of August, 2010. Let me just go ahead and invite some people. Okay. And voluntarily placed himself at the disposal of the Swedish authorities. On the day Chief Prosecutor, Fine, closes the case of S. She announces that she will instruct Inspector Gellin to interview Assange concerning the case of A. The following day, on 26 August, Assange is assigned a public defender of his choice, Leif Silberski, and a formal interview is scheduled for the coming Monday, 30 August. This surprisingly late for the first interview of a prominent suspect. After all, the rape allegations against him have been in the press for days and triggered a worldwide media hype. Given that Finney has already formally closed the investigation in the case of S, Assange is only questioned about the case of A. The interview is recorded on tape and conducted by Matt Gellin in the presence of a second police officer, the interpreter, and Assange's lawyer, Silber- Silberski. Sorry. Early on in the interview... Assange expresses concern about the confidentiality of his statements. Before I answer that, shall I assume that this is going to go to the expressin? He asks. Maskellen hastens to reassure, reassure him. From us? Uh, I'm not going to release anything, and the only ones who are here, that's we three at this interview, plus a stenographer who will write it out after, afterwards, and I'm the only one who has access to the file so if it comes out in expressin you can quarrel with me three days later on 2 September expressin's headline will proudly proclaim here is the interrogation of Assange word for word wow it is during this interview that Assange is first formally notified of the allegations against him during the period from 13 to 14 August 2010 in A's residence at X-X Gitan in Stockholm, Assange molested A during a, an act of copulation which was begun and conducted under the express condition that a condom would be used. 
by purposely damaging the condom and continuing the copulation until he ejaculated in her vagina. Assange denies this allegation, although he confirms that he had sexual intercourse with A several times that evening, always with the same condom. He denies having damaged it and states that he had not even been aware that the condom was damaged. According to Assange, after his first night, he continued to share A's bed for a week. During this period, there were several sexual encounters, albeit without intercourse. Assange said that it was not until Friday 20, August, that A accused him of having removed the condom during their sexual intercourse on the first night. But, so far, she had not accused him of damaging the condom. And this was the first time he heard this allegation. Assange remembers that, after their sexual intercourse, A pointed to a wet spot on the bedsheet and asked, Look at that. Is that you? He replied, No, it must be you. After that, he had no further thoughts about it, especially since it was not brought up again by A until the day the women went to the police. At the end of the interview, Assange begins on his own initiative to comment on the case of S as well, but Gellin does not appear to be interested and concludes the interview. Assange acknowledges that the second story may no longer be relevant, but states for the record that he is available to be questioned about the case as well. He, we can always continue if it is needed, he says to Gillen. Now that Assange has denied the allegations made against him, and since no investigative measures could be realistically proved in those allegations beyond a reasonable, reasonable doubt, the time has come for the Swedish prosecution authority to also close the case of A due to lack of evidence and based on the presumption of innocence. But things turn out differently. Reopening and, and expansion of the investigation. I'm just going to take a sip of tea here. Thank you. On Friday, 27 August 2010, Director of Public Prosecution Marianne Nye receives Borgstrom's complaint against Chief Prosecutor Finney's decision to drop the case of S. Nye needs no more than two working days to give Finney the opportunity to reconsider her discontinuation order, which she declines and then to examine the case file herself and then come to the opposite conclusion. On 1 September, she reopens the preliminary investigation in the case of S and expands the suspicion in the case of A to include more serious offenses. In her decision, she merely states that, based on the case file, there is reason to assume that crime of rape has been committed in the case of S and the crimes of sexual harassment and sexual coercion in the case of A. She further finds the available materials to be insufficient and decides that all relevant investigative measures must be carried out before coming to a final conclusion. At the same time, Marianne Nye announces that she herself is taking over the case. She relieves Finney of her responsibility for the matter and assigns another prosecutor to conduct the preliminary investigation on behalf of Nye. In her decision, the Director of Public Prosecution leaves no doubt as to her personal prerogatives. Matters of greater importance, such as orders of coercive measures, etc., and the completion of the preliminary investigation shall be examined by me. Strikingly, however, something very important is missing from Marianne Nye's decision. She does not issue an arrest warrant against Assange. Chapter 24, Section 1 of the Swedish Code of Judicial Procedure expressly requires that any person is suspected on probable cause of an offense punishable by imprisonment of two years or more, such as rape, be placed in detention, quote, unless it is clear that detention is not warranted. Given that her decision of 1 September 2010 did not offer any justification for exception from the general rule, Nye was legally obliged to issue an arrest warrant against Assange. It was not until 24 November of 2010 that Svea Court of Appeal reduced the categorization of the alleged crime of rape to lesser severity for which an arrest warrant is not mandatory. Hmm. In her decision on 1 September, however, Nye explicitly suspects Assange of a crime carrying a minimum penalty of two years. 
Initial interviews of those involved have already taken place. So, unlike the premature decision taken by Kjellstrand on 20 August, there is now a reasonable basis for an arrest warrant, always presuming that Nye genuinely suspects Assange on probable cause of rape. Besides, the circumstances adduced for the necessity of the first arrest warrant of 20 August, namely Assange's foreign nationality and lack of residence in Sweden, as well as the risks of flight and collusion, are just as relevant now as they were 10 days earlier. However, just like 10 days earlier, the Swedish authorities seem more interested in planning or planting sensational headlines than in actually arresting and interrogating the suspect. Because to do so would force their hand, obliging them to formally charge Assange and expedite a trial, which almost certainly would result in a quick acquittal for lack of evidence. Such an outcome does not fit with their agenda. As we will see, the prosecutor prefers to wait for Assange to leave the country and then accuse him of trying to evade justice. On 1 September 2010, Director of Public Prosecution Marianne Nye takes control, reopens the preliminary investigation into the alleged rape of S, and expands the case of A to include both sexual harassment and sexual coercion. From a procedural point of view, this means that Nine must now examine whether there is sufficient evidence for a formal indictment of Assange. To this end, it is necessary to conduct additional interviews with all involved parties, at least in relation to new or reopened allegations that were not covered in previous interviews. Accordingly, within a few days of Nye's reopening and extending the investigation, Fresh interviews are conducted with both women on 2 September S and 7 September A. Julian Assange, meanwhile, the sole suspect and the person most affected by this investigation, is neither arrested nor interviewed. No one seems to be interested in his version of the story. To former Director of Public Prosecution Sven Erik Alham, this is a clear breach of prosecutorial duty. It is also imperative, according to the Swedish legal procedure, that the accused shall have the opportunity to respond to the accusations at the earliest possible time while he still remembers the intimate details. Denial of the right to be heard. Hmm. On 8 September, after Assange had heard nothing from the Swedish authorities, for a whole week after Nye's decision, his new lawyer, Bjorn Hertig, telephones the director of public prosecution and requests that his client be given the opportunity to be heard in a formal interview. Not just yet, Nye replies, she knows, of course, that Assange is not a national of Sweden, that his business in the country is finished, and he can be expected to leave at any time. She re-interviews the women, but almost demonstratively declines to schedule an interview with the one person she imperatively needs to question before she can decide on formal charges, at least in the case of S, which was not covered by Assange's previous interview. As will be seen, what appears completely nonsensical for the purposes of criminal prosecution will prove highly effective for the purposes of political persecution and fit neatly into the ever-growing puzzle of my own investigation. Another six days go by without Assange hearing back from the authorities. No arrest warrant, no assigned residence, no obligation to report to the police, not even a ban on travel. Although all of these measures are expressly provided for in chapters 24 and 25 of the Swedish Code of Judicial Procedure. On 14 September, Assange's lawyer, Hertig, sends an email to Marianne Nye requesting access to all procedural files as stipulated by the Swedish Code of Judicial Procedure, including criminal allegations, interview protocols, witness statements, and any documents from the security police. Hertig stresses that Assange has urgent business abroad and inquires whether his client is permitted to leave Sweden. As Nye will confirm in writing to the Svea Court of Appeal, on 24 November 2010, and as will be explicitly acknowledged in the agreed statements of facts and issues appended to the judgment of the British Supreme Court in 2012, 
She responds to Hurtig on 15 September that there are no formal obstacles preventing Assange from leaving the country, and that this, at this point in time, several other investigative measures have been taken, or have to be taken, before an interview with Assange becomes necessary. She further explains that Inspector Mats Gellin has fallen ill, and the first investigative task to be completed after his return will be to conduct interviews with two witnesses. In his expert opinion, former prosecutor Alham states the obvious. This, Gellin's illness, is no excuse for the prosecutor's failure to interview Mr. Assange. Others could read the file, or her, Nye's assistant, could direct them on the questions to ask. Moreover, in terms of sequencing an objective, unbiased investigation requires that, if at all possible, both the alleged victims and the suspect be heard prior to other witnesses. This is the only way to identify discrepancies between the respective testimonies of the alleged victims and the suspect before questioning other witnesses with a view to determining the veracity of contradicting accounts. The fact that an index, sorry, the fact that an experienced prosecutor such as Mary and I deliberately delayed the questioning of Assange strongly suggests that she was less interested in establishing the truth than instrumentalizing the alleged victims and other witnesses in order to support and consolidate her own preconceived narrative. Chapter 23 of the Swedish Code of Judicial Procedure also provides that, in principle, investigative interviews should be conducted in the presence of a reliable witness and of the suspect's defense counsel who may put questions to the person who is being questioned. However, in this instance, the vast majority of initial witness interviews were conducted over the phone, without tape recordings or verbatim transcripts and without the presence of a second police officer or other witness. In no case was Assange's attorney permitted to attend or ask questions. As any professional investigator knows, without these safeguards, interviewing police officers remain free to summarize testimonies in their own words and leading questions, manipulative freight, rephrasing, and unwarranted omissions will go unnoticed. Experience also shows that witnesses who are re-interviewed tend to avoid contradicting any written summaries of their original statements that are presented to them because they do not want to be perceived as unreliable by the authorities. As countless studies have demonstrated, human memory and perception of reality can be strongly influenced and distorted by a wide variety of factors including unconscious emotional needs for conformity, security, acceptance and credibility. According to her own testimony to the British Judiciary, Prosecutor Nye made no attempt to schedule an interview with Assange until 21 September, a full month after Express and Headline, and three weeks after her own decision of 1 September. The first attempt for which there is conclusive evidence states, sorry, dates from the following day. On Wednesday, 22 September at 4.06 p.m., Nye sends a text message to Hertig. Hi, it is, it, is it clear whether an interview on Tuesday at 5 p.m. is feasible? The date referred to was Tuesday, 28th September 2010. Hertig replies at 4.48, No, I have not heard, had any contact with my client since we last spoke. I will continue to try to track him down and get back to you as soon as I reach him, but I will be available on Tuesday. Four minutes later, Nye writes, Thanks for letting me know. For the time being, we are assuming that Tuesday, 5 p.m. will work. Grateful for a definite reply as soon as possible. The following afternoon, on Thursday, 23 September, at 5.46 p.m., Nye asks again, Hello, have you been in contact with your client? But Hertig does not respond until 9.01 a.m. on Monday, 27 September. Hello, just want to let you know that I have not been able to establish contact with my client. Ten minutes later, Nye thanks Hertig for the notice. I'll get back to you later today on our further plans. However, Prosecutor Nye neither gets back to Hertig nor waits to see whether Assange will turn up for his interview the following day. 
Instead, she suddenly decides to issue an arrest warrant against him on Monday afternoon at 2.15, purportedly due to a risk of flight and collusion. Less than two hours earlier, Assange booked his flight with Scandinavian Airlines SK-2679 at Stockholm Arlanda Airport, which will leave the Swedish capital for Berlin-Tegel at 5.25 p.m. the same day. As a witness in the Swedish-British extradition proceedings at the city of Westminster Magistrates Court, Hertig will later conceal his text message correspondence with Prosecutor Nye and claim that she never tried to schedule an interview with Assange before his departure on 27 September. This professional oversight is difficult to comprehend and results in a lot of negative press for Hertig as well as earning him a reprimand from the Swedish Bar Association. Over and beyond legitimate criticism, Hertig's mistake is later blown out of proportion and inappropriately exploited by the British judge in order to undermine the personal credibility not only of Hertig himself, but also of the expert witnesses instructed by him, and to deflect from the much more serious failures of the Swedish prosecution authority. As will become abundantly clear, Hertig's misrepresentation of facts had no significant evidentiary relevance, as it could not have affected the actual scope and gravity of the Swedish prosecutor's malpractice in any way. For now, let us just note that the text messages exchanged between Nye and Hertig from 22 to 27 September do not alter the fact that despite multiple requests on the part of Assange, Prosecutor Nye did not intend to give him the chance to be heard regarding the alleged rape of S until 28 September 2010. That was six long weeks after the alleged offense, more than five weeks after the unlawful and extremely damaging leak to Expressen, and a full four weeks after the race, rape investigation had been reopened, a massive delay for which there could be no excuse whatsoever. To put this into context of domestic legislation, here are the standards of the expediency set in Chapter 23 of the Swedish Code of Judicial Procedure. The preliminary investigation shall be conducted as expeditiously as possible. When there is no longer reason for pursuing the investigation, it shall be discontinued. As far as Assange personally is concerned, it is thus objectively established that he reacted to the rape allegations by voluntarily postponing his departure that he reacted to the rape allegations by voluntarily postponing his departure from Sweden by more than a month that he voluntarily participated in the earliest possible police interview and responded to all questions asked by the police on the case of A that he repeatedly took the initiative also to be questioned about the case of S, and that he had requested and received prosecutorial approval for his departure from Sweden almost two weeks in advance. Prosecutorial approval for his departure from Sweden almost two weeks in advance. The fact that Assange was difficult to reach during his stay in Sweden has nothing to do with trying to evade justice. Two days after his arrival, in response to pressure exerted by the U.S. government, all of his credit cards had been canceled, rendering him unable to book a hotel or buy food and forcing him to depend on the hospitality of acquaintances, to spend the night in their private homes or offices, and to constantly change his location. For the same reason, he often did not have enough credit on his phone to make or receive calls. There is no evidence that Assange was aware of the interview scheduled for him on 28 September, or that he left Sweden knowing that his pro the prosecutor still wanted to interview him at all. All, the sorry, all of the available evidence illustrates that Hertig was unable to contact him, and that he left Sweden because the most was unable to contact him and that he left Sweden because the most recent information he had was that the prosecutor did not wish to schedule an interview with him and that he was free to leave the country. In the light of these indisputable facts, the widespread myth that Assange wanted to evade Swedish justice 
can safely be discarded as deliberate misinformation. So I'm going to take a quick break here. We've got some listeners here. We've got. So I'm going to take a quick break here. We've got some listeners here. We've got Justin, John, Loki, Siwa, Alex, Daniel, and Charlie. Um, this is the Unsanctioned Citizen podcast. Thank you for attending. Hey, Daniel, how's it going? Um, we just discovered that. Julian Assange had been at must at high level it must have been a State Department call to to get him swift fast acting I mean there must have been really close work to get him sanctioned to a point from the creditors so that he couldn't buy he couldn't book a hotel or buy food they seized all of his his credit bank accounts so that that was that was pretty rapid so he left Sweden and two days after his so he left Sweden and two days after his arrival in response to pressure exerted by the US government all of his credit cards had been canceled canceled the sanctioned non-citizen. So would anybody like to jump up here and discuss this before I move to the next next part of this and, and comment on any of it? Because there's there was scraps of a busted knee of it. Because there's there was scraps of a busted condom that were floating for, I don't know, three and a half weeks. They never interviewed him. The case was dismissed once, they reopened it, and then they didn't interview him the second time. So it seems like kangaroo to me, but that's my opinion. I'm asking you if you have an opinion. This is this is the documentation from this UN Special Rapporteur on torture and ill treatment. I would say that he's forensically pretty detailed. You know, he has no motivation to lie or deceive any public. He doesn't benefit, I don't think. So, I will just move forward then. Let me read the chat. Let's see here. The sanctioned non-citizen from Daniel. Okay, Daniel, we're just going to move ahead then. Sweden as a reliable partner of the United States. Was it by chance, Daniel, we're just going to move ahead then. Sweden, as a reliable partner of the United States, was it by chance that Assange's interview was scheduled for the exact first day after his departure from Sweden? It seems unlikely. Had Prosecutor Nye really wanted to interview him on that day, she would not have relied on a casual text message exchange with Hertig, but would have served him with a formal summons for Assange, as provided for in Chapter 23, Section 7 of the Swedish Code of judicial procedure. After all, this was not of the Swedish code of judicial procedure. After all, this was not about local pickpockets being questioned by the village sheriff, but a politically explosive case that had triggered worldwide media attention and was affected by strong third third party interest. Moreover, had prosecutor Nye genuinely intended to interview Assange on 28 September at 5 p.m., she would not have issued an arrest warrant against him more than 24 hours before the appointment, but only in the event of a no-show. Unless, of course, she already knew he had planned to depart on 27 September. So let's pull off this into real-world perspective. WikiLeaks had just published the biggest leak in Western military history, and was perceived as a serious threat to national security by the United States and its allies, including Sweden and the United Kingdom. It would be ingenuous to believe that in August 2010 Kingdom. It would be ingenuous to believe that in August 2010 Julian Assange could have visited Sweden without at least at the very least be, being constantly kept on the radar of the Swedish security police, SAPO. 
And on the 18th of August, the state-affiliated Swedish Foreign Policy Institute went on national television to express its concern that the planned establishment of WikiLeaks in the country would strain transatlantic relations between Sweden and the country would strain transatlantic relations between Sweden and the United States. In an interview published on 8 September, the head of the Swedish Military Security Service, John Daniels, went as far as to describe WikiLeaks as a threat to our soldiers. It was it also was an open secret that the U.S. Department of Justice under Attorney General Eric Holder was already exploring avenues for prosecuting Assange and had asked allied nations to do the same. At that time, the U.S. government was well aware of the planned publication by WikiLeaks of the Iraq war logs and Cablegate and was bent on stopping Assange in his tracks. More generally, the U.S. diplomatic correspondence classified as secret and later published as part of Cablegate offers conclusive evidence that the Swedish government maintained informal information-sharing arrangements with U.S. intelligence services, which were deliberately concealed from both the country's parliament intelligence services, which were deliberately concealed from both the country's parliament and from the wider public. Swedish military and civilian intelligence organizations are strong and reliable partners on a range of key issues. The U.S. Embassy in Stockholm noted on 1 May 2007, quote, due to domestic political considerations, the extent of this cooperation is not widely known within the Swedish government, and it would be useful to acknowledge this cooperation privately as public mention, useful to acknowledge this cooperation privately as public mention of the cooperation would open up the government to domestic criticism. 07 Stockholm 506 underscore A something something 6. In the following year on 7 November 2008, the U.S. Embassy referred to Swedish constitutional restrictions on the use of intelligence and noted that the Swedish Ministry of Justice team expressed a strong degree of satisfaction with current informal information-sharing arrangements with the U.S., which cover a wide range of law enforcement and anti-terrorism cooperation, and affirmed their willingness to continue feeding information to the U.S. through existing informal channels. At the same time, given that this was a particularly sensitive time politically in Sweden for issues involving government surveillance, and affecting personal privacy, the Swedish officials expressed concern that these and other existing the Swedish officials expressed concern that these and other existing informal information sharing arrangements could be placed at jeopardy if exposed to parliamentary scrutiny and public spotlight. Zero eight Stockholm seven four eight underscore A. Quite evidently. In the absence of any sort of individual accountability, even the scandal exposing the unlawful rendition of Sapo of the Egyptian nationals in Giza and Algeria into the hands of the Egyptian nationals in Giza and Algeria into the hands of the CIA torturers had done nothing to enhance the Swedish government's sensitivity towards its obligations under the country's constitution and international human rights law. To the mind of unsuspecting citizens, the blatant lawlessness of the international intelligence cooperation might be deeply disconcerting. To anyone who even remotely acquainted with the secretive reality of this parallel universe, however, none of it comes as a surprise. Given the perceived security threat posed by WikiLeaks, it is virtually guaranteed that SAPO constantly monitored the flight booking system at Stockholm Airport for the passenger name Assange, and that they immediately informed the Swedish Prosecution Authority of the imminent departure of its most prominent suspect through informal channels and without any form of public scrutiny, of course, just like its transatlantic information exchange with the United States. Just like its transatlantic information exchange with the United States. Assange, for this part, was no under no illusions. The surveillance risk had long since become part of his routine. In order to not give 
the Secret Service's too much advance notice, he bought his flight ticket, as always, shortly before departure and paid with cash directly at the airport. On 27 September 2010, Assange arrives at Arlanda Airport around noon. His preferred flight to Berlin arrives at Arlanda Airport around noon. His preferred flight to Berlin is already fully booked, so he has to switch to a later flight and spend a few hours waiting at the airport, longer than he would have liked, long enough to show up in Sapo's data monitoring system and give the authorities time to consult and react. The fact that Assange is allowed to leave the country even so is not a sign of incompetence on the part of the Swedish authorities, but another puzzle piece suggesting an entirely different agenda. A plan clearly does not appear to be an arrest and interrogate, interrogation of Assange, but to create and perpetuate the public narrative of a fugitive sex offender, all the while denying him an opportunity to defend himself. Although Prosecutor Nye was obliged by law to issue an arrest warrant against Assange as soon as she had reopened the rape investigation on 1 September, she only does so once he appears in the passenger monitoring system on 1 September. She only does so once he appears in the passenger monitoring system a few hours before his departure. She then allows him to leave the country and thereby gets him to inadvertently confirm the alleged flight risk by his own action. Should anyone still doubt the Swedish authorities were fully aware of Assange's travel plans, that they consciously refrained from arresting him at the border and even accompanied his departure in real time, then these reservations would be dispelled by the evidence surrounding the simultaneous time. Then these reservations would be dispelled by the evidence surrounding the simultaneous disappearance of Assange's luggage. Assange traveled to Berlin on 27 September 2010 to meet with various journalists, in particular Holger Stark and Marcel Rosenbach of Der Spiegel, as well as Stefania Maurici of L'Espresso. Maurici would later succeed through an unrelenting freedom of information lawsuit in obtaining the release of important documents clearly demonstrating the collusion between the Swedish and British authorities. For now, however, the focus was on establishing new publication partnerships for the major leaks that were to be released later in 2010, the Iraq war logs and Cablegate. The purpose, location, and date of these meetings had already been agreed by 26 July and 25 August with unencrypted email correspondence, which could easily be intercepted. So this information was almost certainly already known to easily be intercepted. So this information was almost certainly already known to the authorities. Again, it would be completely unrealistic to think that in August 2010, and with impending publication of enormous amounts of secret information, the U.S. intelligence services would not be systematically monitoring any unencrypted email correspondence received by WikiLeaks. We can therefore safely assume that the Swedish authorities knew exactly how long they would have that the Swedish authorities knew exactly how long they would have to procrastinate the interview with Assange in order to provoke his purported escape from Sweden. While the intelligence services naturally had every interest in intercepting any documents or hard disks which Assange planned to hand over to journalists in Berlin. On this background, it becomes clear that it is no coincidence at all that Assange was allowed to leave Sweden despite the existence of a valid arrest warrant and that his luggage disappeared on the journey. Only a short direct flight connects the two capitals, but after landing in Berlin, Assange is the only passenger whose checked bag is nowhere to be found. According to Assange, it contained three encrypted laptops and various hard drives containing sensitive records, including evidence of an unpublished war crime. Assange's boarding pass shows that in Stockholm he checked one piece of luggage. Assange's boarding pass shows that in Stockholm he checked one piece of luggage weighing 13 kilograms, a slip of the baggage receipt with a barcode, and the registration number 0117SK 
847-249-SK2679 forward slash 27SCP is attached to the boarding pass. However, this bag never arrives in Berlin. The files on record include a baggage loss report from Berlin Tegel Airport, dated 27 include a baggage loss report from Berlin Tegel Airport, dated 27 September at 7.45 p.m., as well as the signed statements of numerous witnesses, all of whom confirm the loss of Assange's luggage. Aciona Airport Services, which provides baggage services in Berlin, contacts the Scandinavian airline SAS, but receives no information. At Assange's request, the journalist Johannes Wallström inqu inquires with SAS in Stockholm without any success. Phone calls are also made to SAS from Berlin. The information is always the same. The computer system shows that Assange checked one piece of luggage at Arlanda Airport and that it never left Stockholm but disappeared inside the restricted area of the airport immediately after check-in and even before passing through the x-ray. Mysteriously, the bag cannot be found. Finally, Wallstrom calls Inspector Gellin and confronts him with a fairly obvious conclusion that the Swedish security police might have something to do with the disappearance of Assange's bag. If the security police were involved, Gellin says he would be aware of it, but he promises to make inquiries. Not surprisingly, Gellin never gets back to Wallstrom or anyone else, and the luggage remains accounted, unaccounted for to this day. No confiscation order, no notification and certification of seizure, and no legal remedy, all in clear contradiction uh, to Chapter 27 of the Code of Judicial Procedure, another weighty piece in the puzzle. In an email to Assange's lawyer, Bjorn Hertig, on November 15, 2010, Prosecutor Nye categorically denies any involvement of Sapo in the case. After all, this investigation relates to sexual offenses, not national security offenses, she said. That this official this is the official narrative, just as predictable is the reaction of Sapo itself. In response to a question asked by Swedish radio on eleven december twenty ten, Sapo merely says it is following developments but cannot comment on its work in individual individual cases. As usual, the radio presenter comments laconically but fails to dig deeper. The Swedish press appears content to be left in the dark, and so does the public. The strategy seems to work, and where there is no accuser, there is no judge. With Assange's departure from Sweden, the stage was set for perf perfect enactment of a script, which on the day of Assange's first arrest in London on 7 December 2010, was outlined with terrifying precision in an internal mail correspondence of the U.S. Global Intelligence consulting firm Stratfor. Pylon! Move him from country to country to face various charges for the next 25 years, but seize everything he and his family own to include every person linked to Wiki. Wow. Excuse me, T. Indeed, as will become increasingly clear in the course of the next months during his stay in Sweden, Julian Assange's success story had turned into a, a story of political persecution. The involved governments had successfully snatched the spotlight directed at them by WikiLeaks, turned it around, and pointed it at Assange. At him personally, not his organization, because that would have been too obvious. But from that moment and until today, the authorities, the established media, and the general public will devote their attention entirely to the alleged misconduct and purported character flaws of Assange. Forgotten are the war crimes and the corruption of the powerful. Mission accomplished. And that, my friends, is a wrap of Chapter 6, Anatomy of a Persecution. It took all week. Okay, does anybody want to jump up here and say hello or give a talk before I get out of here? Any comments on the text? I'll go down to the comments here and just have a look. Divine Madness, a little late to take the bribe for Assange. 
so that's one. So I have 13 listeners today. Thank you for dropping in, everybody. Oh, hey, there's Mace. We know Mace. Hey, how's it going, Mace? Hey, so um, what's your opinion? Oh, my gosh, you're so robotic. Can you repeat the question? Oh, dear. Um, Much better. Oh, it's fixed itself. Okay. What do you think about fat people and airplane tickets? Hmm. Well, I'm yes, not... Yes, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly with you there. Fat people should pay for two tickets. Oh. Okay. I didn't I didn't indicate. But we know, Mace, we know you're going to have joking. a program. <laughs> you're not joking. You're not joking. You just want to... No, no, I, I was joking. I, I, was, I was joking about putting words into your mouth. What do you actually think? I don't know. I don't really have too much of a thought. Now, I did have a very obese stepmother. And I think that uh, that it would have been, I don't know. Obese people are are in trouble with their health. So I think it would be persecutory to require them to purchase two seats. Now, do I think that, you know, additional accommodations should be made? Yeah. Um, but it should be on a flight or in an area of the flight where they could kind of be more comfortable. They might be, be a little bit separated from the family, but um, but for morbidly obese or for really seriously obese people riding a plane, um, you know, I guess I guess they'd have to consult their doctor before traveling anyway. So my thought is, don't charge them extra, but give them accommodations for the comfort of the people around them but also for the safety of the flight that's my thought if someone is so fat that when they sit down next to me that they're actually like they're they're physically incapable of staying within their allotted space and so they have to take up some of my space as the person next to them shouldn't they then pay for some of my ticket because i'm not getting what I paid for, because they're stealing from me, basically. Well, I don't think anybody's stolen from anyone, because as long as you get a seat on the plane, and, you know, the travel itself is really the compensation. But but the they're exchange. sitting on part of my seat. Um, is it possible that you could ask for a different seat? If, if, it, uh, if it really bothers if, you that they're touching the, you? Not if the seat's packed. Sorry, not if the plane's packed. If the plane is packed... I don't know. I really feel like this is this is a this is kind of a trifle to chase my my intentions here. Let me let me look down here in the comments. Maybe I'll get saved. So what volume of ours are we referring to? <laughs> uh, so much volume that they they cannot just take up the seats they've paid for. They have to take up some of my seats as well. Well, I hope maybe that someone will confiscate the excess R's. And yeah, this is difficult math for me on a Friday. If you'd asked me about the content, I think I would be able to like be quick Should about be a no brainer. Should be isn't because I just have to get out of the deep track here, and I can't. Sorry, it's a high climb or low climb rather. I don't know. <laughs> Thanks for. Turning this into Jerry Springer somehow, Maze. When's your program? Uh, it's in about uh, it's 90 minutes. Okay. So Divine Madness says, this helps Julian so much now. <laughs> Do you have anything to say towards the content? Julian Assange had, was allowed to leave the country. He asked for permission. He did everything they asked him to do. And then they just dragged him. Legally. I have no idea who that is. Who? Julian Assange? Yeah, never heard of him. Oh my gosh, he's the proprietor, um, the executive director at WikiLeaks, a known journalist. When I was doing my other reading, actually, I was thinking of the Panama Papers. And had it not been for WikiLeaks and the, the enterprise of Julian Assange to get these leaks out, then we wouldn't have the reliable or 
additional reliable reporting of um, the Willful Blindness book that was contributed earlier this year. So, very important stuff. He's done a lot of very significant things with WikiLeaks, but again, they turned the spotlight onto, away from themselves and they put it onto, onto um, Julian, who's one singular man, and you know they deserve to have to be inspected. There's so much corruption going on. And the fact that they have done this really shows more about them than it does about um, Julian. Julian is probably just a, you know, he's a flawed man. You know, a lot of journalists are flawed people, but I'm, you know, everyone has their flaws. They're just not exposed so, so critically the way that this has been done. You know, and typically there are press protections, but the national security aperture, which, you know, was greenlit by Eric Holder, was exhaustively bad. You know, if I were to, if someone put the presidential hat on my head tomorrow, one of the first things I would do is go after Eric Holder. And I would go after all the liars who stood up before the American people in Congress and lied to the American people. I might I might exile some people. I might put on a trial for treason. And if so convicted, there might be some some capital punishment. But no one has even dared suggest it. Whoa, they put these wait, people capital, on capital. capital punishment. Are you sure you want to go there? What? To, to, the, that's the uh, sentence. You really if found think guilty. That... It's not whether I want it. If the people decide, or if the if the judge concludes that treason has occurred okay against the United States then the the sentence result is usually death and do you support that whether i support it or not it's the law but i have a vindictive do you, do you mind it, about the matter does such a law ought to exist well um it does exist whether it ought to exist or not, I'm, I'm but if, comforted if by it. If you're the dictator <laughs> of the world, would you allow it? I don't know if I get to make those decisions alone. Hypothetically, you're the dictator. Hypo whatever you say goes. Well, I mean, if I, if it were my own household, that would be the only dictatorship that I would really get to do. Everything else would be subordinate to the law and the people of the United States. So I would make zero moves without you know, checking in with, you know, the the Department of Justice and the courts and everything everything else. You don't ever make a life and death decision about another man in the terms of justice alone. You're avoiding the question. I'm not. I'm saying that that's what I would do. So, yes or no, should, should the government be allowed to kill people? Um, there are wars. And the government okay. kills Rephrase. people. Should the government be allowed to kill prisoners? Should the government be allowed to convict a person to the cause of death? Um, it won't. It won't be very savory, but I think in some cases it probably would benefit the people. In some cases. So you would allow it? I wouldn't like. It wouldn't be like my first choice. But I would say, yeah. Interesting. Um, how would you feel about coming on my show sometime to have a debate about that? I don't know that I'm the strongest candidate because I don't have a, a like a deep, deep feeling about it. There, there are not a lot of things. You know, I'm trying to to focus on people who are here and supporting life as much as I can. But there are people who put so much danger in front of other people that I think the like like Jeffrey Dahmer there's a guy who probably should have been you know signed up for capital punishment and death row for sure he was just too big of a risk for humanity you know to he was like like a 
very, very toxic, like poisonous people. There aren't that would many. You, would you say there. that the risk is null when that person is behind bars? No. Sometimes some things are not enough. You know, the, the, the danger to society is not removed. What's the danger? Well, I have a... This is a really weird answer, and it's a strange answer. But um, I think that there's a spiritual dimension to what was going on with that guy. And for him to kind of allow to stay and radiate in the same you know, cosmic space as other living people was very harmful. Um, so sending him to the next beyond uh, probably was more of a relief for people spiritually than it was for, you know, because there's, there's there are bad people in the world, Mace. You know, sometimes... You know, fear and judgment is one thing, but there's there's a significant evil and danger that they pose that's very powerful. That their their existence motivates people to do horrible things to each other, and you know we really don't need that. We need people to be inspired to do do right by themselves, to fix their problems, to to be encouraged, to to seek a higher level of living, to you know, to embrace optimism, to think but of... not in the case of this person, apparently. This person, I am pretty sure, was a hopeless, despairing loss. Um, now, I know that Brett and other people that are in Pangburg probably would disagree with me, um, but that's kind of where I, as an individual, am at. I don't think Julian I thought Assange you were a Christian. I am. I am a Christian. So surely everyone is capable of redemption, in your view. There, there is a, the there is a measure of redemption. I just don't think he was capable of embracing it. But, you know, I could be wrong. And I, I it would be fine if I were wrong about that. It would be fine. I would, well, I would you'll never up. find out if you kill him. No, and I didn't kill him. So... <laughs> Well, I'm not in quite, charge of that. That's what I I don't like being, you know, in charge of people's life and death. You know, I don't I don't really like being, you know, playing god with other people's futures. It really makes me uncomfortable. Then um, why are you in favor of the death penalty? Well, I'm not necessarily in favor or against it. It's just I'm I'm actually kind of being a weenie here, Mace. I'm I'm cowering under the law. The law permits it, and when it happens, I might be happy about it. <laughs> All right. Why do you think <laughs> the death penalty is an acceptable penalty? I, I think I just explained it, but you know, you you probably want more of an explanation than I'm. You're not gonna... telling me why you find it acceptable. You're why just saying I find that it you, you're saying it is acceptable. But I'm, you're not I'm really saying, saying that why. you know it's not the first preference, but it, if you know, in case of emergency of some sort, you know, break glass. I don't know, does anybody else have anything on this? Because I wouldn't, for instance, here's a man, Julian Assange, he's, he's done something for society. He's exhumed the, the terrific crimes of the governments that, you know, are supposed to be working for the people, and they want to kill him and criminalize him, but they have behaved atrociously. They're, they're behaving evilly. They are behaving illegally uh, they are behaving criminally they are not following their own processes they are um, you know they're causing despair amongst their constituents they're demoralizing the citizens and those things are evil in my offense, in my in my estimation so I want to juxtapose like the interest of say like a higher thing like journalism which people seem to you know they're throwing it to the side and saying well this is lost but then to the preference of allowing these people to prevail. I guess they don't understand how to wrap their minds around it that, you know, you cannot tolerate corruption and then not end up underneath it somehow. 
And I think that that's what I'm trying to communicate. I think that's what Nils Melser, who is the accountability arm of the UN for horrible crimes against humanity, um, is trying to communicate. Uh, in that movie, The Lord of War, that has been featured on HBO and Showtime, you know, people commit murder, you know, on their own auspices every day. I don't self-authorize the taking of another man's life. It doesn't seem right to me. Uh, but does this kind of thing, this slow kill, slow grinding lawfare, is is in some case uh, a fate worse than death? Um, you know, Mace, do you have anything else for us? I'm going to try to take Loki here. I've got William and I, Thomas. I would and... just add that um, yeah, I appreciate this is probably something you haven't really thought deeply about, but I would it's true. like to invite you to have a think about it and then contact me about having a proper debate about this sometime. Yeah, it's it's not I'm not real like it is not my real strong point because I'm trying to trying to focus on things. But you know, it's okay to to kind of get stronger in that area and try to think about things more ethically. Um I don't I don't really know what problems it will solve, but I know that I feel deeply comforted if if some of these perceived traitors we're no longer with us. That's for absolute sure. Hello? Hey, what's up? Hey, who's this? Uh, it's Loki. It's, yeah, it just says it there. Oh, okay, nice Loki. How's it yeah. going? It's going all right. So, uh, what did you have to add? Well, just on the death penalty, the, like, as, you know, the purpose of the tool, like, the philosophical purpose of the tool is kind of clear. It's like, it's a tool in the toolbox that you use kind of when you're at the end of your rope and none of the other tools are working, I guess, like, judicially. Mm -hmm. But the, the problem... I feel weird. With... I, I just wanted to say something really quickly, Loki, and I just, I just don't want to... I don't want to miss this. There's a subtle leading away from, you know, Julian Assange is under heavy persecutory imprisonment, and he is facing there. death at this point. If he gets that, there is prognostication that if he is tried in the United States for some odd reason, that he would face death. I don't think that that is. Um, that's not a fair trial for, you know, to make him a victim of, of telling the truth. And it serves no purpose to the American people, nor is it lawful. But here we are talking about the death penalty instead of, you know, maybe hardened in prison time, if not exile, stripping people of their, of their public benefits and of their stature as public authorities in the national security state. None of those things are being mentioned, but I will mention them for the sake of this discussion. In my opinion, that's already being done. He's already... Can you can you go back to your mic? It's quite muted. Hello? You there? Yeah, it's, it's, you sound like you're underwater, Loki. Ah, uh, shit. Not again. Alright. How about that? Is that better? No, it's terrible. Let's see. Can you... Do you know what you did? <laughs> okay. Uh, How about now? I've been having this. Problem. No, it's worse, but, actually. Um, yeah, I'll call in another time. Thanks for time. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, Loki. Thanks for mentioning it. You know, it's it's worth. You know, you can always check out Mace's room. He's gonna do. He's gonna do a show on it. So we've got Charles, Alex, Siwa, Justin, John, Murphy, Alana, The Sandwich, Iggy Thomas, William, and Lukey. Thank you guys. Oh, Mace, final final thoughts before we get out of here. Giddy up. Um, what's your thoughts on slavery? Can you speak up? What do you think about slavery? Not now. Not now. <laughs> Not surely, now. Surely Not now. That's, that's it. That's that was the question. We'll just leave it hanging in the air. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Mace. Thank you for joining the unsanctioned citizen. We'll do it another time. 
Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. Join us tomorrow, guys. Between 1 and 3 p.m., we're going to be discussing our AI and technology roundup. There will probably be the mention of privacy somewhere in there, but you probably already know that. Thanks for listening. Before you go, hit the subscribe button. Remember that callers are welcome. Subscribers can access unsanctioned citizen podcast archives at Substack, Automatic, iHeartRadio Podcasts, and Call In. Please stay in touch. We want to hear from you. Visit Sheila M. Dean 